This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, coming to you from Gadigal land. And this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. With the Victorian election around the corner, the incumbent Premier Dan Andrews has been under the media spotlight. But a series of stories from the News Corp paper The Herald Sun appears to have taken Australian journalism into uncharted territory. Days of headlines and column inches focused on a long-since litigated crash with a cyclist and a front-page story which seemingly tapped into a baseless conspiracy theory surrounding Dan Andrews' fall down a flight of stairs. But do these stories have any news value? Or is this a targeted campaign to muddy the waters ahead of a crucial election? Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of News Mike Tisha about how the Herald Sun flooded the zone. It's Friday, the 11th of November. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So the Victorian election campaign is underway and the Herald Sun has run a series of stories about Dan Andrews over the past week or so, Lenore. What have they been about? Well, (laughs) they've been about quite a lot of things, but to pick out the ones that have sort of raised eyebrows the most, I suppose, there was a series of stories about a collision between the Andrews family car when they were on a beach holiday about almost a decade ago, and a 15-year-old cyclist who was quite badly injured. The police investigated at the time. They found that the Andrews had done nothing wrong. The Herald Sun has run this several times over the intervening years, but just as the election campaign began, they went back to it again, pegging it on the young man breaking his silence and saying he now wants to take legal action, although it's not clear really what. A second story led on secret police photos of the car, which as far as I could tell upheld the Andrews version, which is that they came around a corner and the cyclist T-boned them. And presumably the cops thought that too because the photos came from the cops' files and they didn't find any wrongdoing. And then there was another story about the stairs that Dan Andrews fell down over a year ago where he sustained quite serious injuries and he was off work for some time because he had back injuries. That story also didn't really have any new information in that it was just a picture of the stairs, but it seemed to be suggesting that the stairs weren't tall enough, that there were only two stairs Mm. and they were fairly small, that that couldn't have, well, it didn't actually say that. It was more implied. So they were the main stories that the Herald Sun has run, which have raised questions as to their newsworthiness and what's exactly going on here. Yeah. What is going on, Mike? Uh, Well, you'd probably have to ask them. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what seems to be going on is that there's a lot of kind of innuendo and speculation and we're just asking questions about this. We're entitled to ask questions in the name of putting stuff out there to sort of invite doubt about the Premier's truthfulness, basically, Mm -hmm. over these two events in the middle of an election campaign, which is pretty questionable, I think, in the absence of any actual evidence that he or his family even did anything wrong in either of these events. 
but some of the language in the stories has been pretty... Suggestive? Suggestive, yeah. You know, they've just kind of danced around actually making any actual mm. accusations or bringing any facts to bear, but they're talking about, like in the step story, for example, the Herald Sun said, these are the steps where Daniel Andrews says he fell last year, obviously inviting the idea that he didn't fall or something is not right with his story. The Premier has never fully explained what he was doing in the days before the incident or exactly where it happened. Like, there's something there. We're not going to tell you what it is. Maybe we don't know what it is, but there's something there that you should be worried about. But, but we, we can't put anything, we can't well, say what fact, it is. <laughs> in fact, in that story, they went to, because this fall has been the subject of more conspiracy theories than I've spent seen around almost any event other than, you know, maybe JFK's shooting in the moon landing. Like, honestly, it is, the conspiracy theories are everywhere. They allegedly involve all manner of famous Victorians and all manner of different things, but there's never been any evidence for any of them. And we did do a story a while ago sort of looking at how these conspiracy theories start and how they gain traction. And in the story, the Herald Sun actually says, well, there's been conspiracy theories that say X, Y and Z, but there's no evidence for any of that. But actually by writing the story, they're kind of fueling the same conspiracy theories. And, you know, obviously if there's any evidence, any actual evidence that the Premier's not telling the truth or that there's anything more to say about either of these incidents, by all means, knock your socks off. But so far there hasn't been and the only impact has been to feed another endless line of opinion pieces saying, oh, you know, these are the questions he has to answer he does he have a funny relationship with the police is he untrustworthy you know just all kinds of innuendo that there's some sort of there's some kind of shady business going on here the police line i find also particularly interesting because it links it back into the very strong feelings that remain in victoria about the lockdowns and you know the length of the lockdowns and the way they were policed and I'm sure it's a coincidence, but the Liberals ran an advertisement this week featuring footage from the anti-vaccine mandate riots, you know, when there was um, all the shutdowns were happening and asking if people remember when we hit the streets to protest the lockdown. So there's this kind of conflagration of he's shady and he has sort of slightly improper links with the police and the reaction in some parts of the Victorian society against the police and how the police were used during the lockdowns. Mm. And Andrew Bolton has specifically made this connection, despite the fact that he's saying, I don't know what happened, I don't know the truth, but we've seen how close the police are to Andrews and he cites specifically both the lockdown, police savagely enforcing Andrews' pandemic lockdown, and then also even more bizarrely, to the prosecution of Cardinal Pell, which, you know, he was prosecuted, he was found guilty, he appealed, he was acquitted on appeal. <laughs> That's a pretty normal judicial it's process that is work. not really yeah. in the gift of the Premier to influence. Kevin Rudd, in a piece we wrote about this, and Kevin Rudd obviously has been spearheading the whole push for some sort of Royal Commission into News Corp, so he is, you know, he's coming at it from a particular perspective, but he said that what they're doing is dog-whistling to conspiracy theorists. Mm. They have run anti-Labor campaigns before, Lenore, but something about this feels different. What is going on? Look, as Mike said, it's hard for us to know for sure, but I think a lot of observers are looking at it and thinking this isn't exactly how 
things have rolled in previous elections, in the last election, the Liberals and, you know, with support from the News Corp tabloids ran the African gangs issue, you know, claiming that there were African gangs running amok in Melbourne and I think Peter Dutton said that, you know, Victorians were scared to go to restaurants at night, et cetera, et cetera. That didn't work at all. The Liberals were soundly defeated and that was not seen to be an effective campaign. And so the Australian's associate editor wrote a piece just saying, look, this is a real distraction, that he'd looked into all these claims and every investigation had come to a screaming dead end and here are all the important things we could be talking about. You know, other people look at it and probably think there's something similar to former Trump advisor Steve Bannon's tactic of flooding the zone. And it does kind of look similar to that. I mean, Bannon, that quote comes from an interview Bannon gave where he said, the Democrats don't matter, the real opposition is the media, and the way to deal with them is to flood the zone with shit. In other words, muddy the waters, create so much confusion or narratives and counter-narratives and suspicion and so many threads that people just think, oh, there must be something wrong, I'm not 100% sure what it is. I mean, I guess the difference here is that if that is what's happening, it's the media that's doing it. And if you look at it, It certainly did disrupt the news cycle. The nightly newses were leading with Andrew's not answering questions and his past coming back to haunt him. On the other hand, a lot of journalists are getting on with reporting the big issues in Victoria and also some quite genuine alleged scandals. You know, there's some quite genuine questions being asked. So I think it's a bit hard to tell at the moment how effective it's going to be, but it has a real flavour of the flood the zone strategy to it. Mm. It's hard not to be struck by the similarities with that way of introducing a bizarre or left-field idea into the political narrative. It's hard not to be struck by the parallels with what Trump and Tucker Carlson and others in the US have done with that. I'm just asking questions about Barack Obama's birth certificate mm. or... Ted he, could, Cruz- he could clear this up. <laughs> yeah. A lot of whether, people say... Whether Ted Cruz's father was involved in the assassination of JFK, you know, I'm just just asking, what was he doing with Lee Harvey Oswald, you know? Obviously, those are even more wild claims or, you know, suppositions about events that obviously are not true. It is hard not to be struck by the similarity in the sort of form of the reporting, that it's spending a lot of time on stuff that has not much evidence behind it and it's in that manner of, well, everyone's entitled to ask, you know, a lot of people are talking about this, everyone's entitled to ask questions. But one big difference in the Victorian context is in the US, and I guess you could also apply this to Russia, the whole point of that was to, you know, disorient people so that they were confused, they were overloaded with information, there was too much to disentangle what was true and what wasn't and therefore they sort of latched on to a strong leader, I guess, is a you know, very simplistic way of putting that process. But in Victoria, they don't have Trump or Putin, they have Matthew Guy. Hmm. So there's no kind of logical, <laughs> you know, it doesn't necessarily follow that the outcome of this kind of reporting is going to be similar to what we've seen in the US. But, I mean, I'm not alleging campaign tactics by the Herald Sun, but if you were looking at it through that prism, you could say, well, look, I mean, Dan Andrews is a popular leader and a strong leader and Matthew Guy really isn't. So if you wanted to try and, you know, run Matthew Guy's campaign, if you're a Matthew Guy strategist, raising doubts over Dan Andrews would be a more effective tactic given the time you've got left than trying to sort of convince everyone that Matthew Guy's a strong and terrific leader when people have 
pretty yeah. strong doubts about that. No, 100%. But I guess um, in recent years in Victoria, both in state and federal elections, going back to the African gangs example, federal election, there was huge campaigns against the Teal independence and against Labor in Victoria. Didn't work. It's a progressive state yeah. that doesn't really go for the politics of yeah. division, mostly. There have been some serious stories about the integrity of the Andrews government raised in the media, though, haven't there, Lenore? There was a very interesting story in The Age where they revealed that Dan Andrews and one of his ministers are being investigated in an IBAC, so that's the Anti-Corruption Commission in Victoria, in an investigation by them over the awarding of some grants to a Labor-linked union just before the last election. The money was supposed to be for training. The allegation, unproven, appears to be that there was sort of some political intention in the funding as well. It is just an allegation at the moment when the story came out. Well, the IBAC tried to injunct the story in the first instance and then when it was finally reported, um, Dan Andrews didn't answer any questions about it because it was an ongoing investigation. But that was a story where there was some facts behind mm. it, you know. There are criticisms made of Dan Andrews that he runs a very centralised government, that he does kind of put a lot of power in his political office as opposed to the public service, that decision-making is centralised. I mean, those things are absolutely legitimate things for journalists to be investigating in a campaign, I think. And that goes for the uh, for the pandemic as well. I mean, it would be amazing if the reactions of the state government were not a, a topic of debate in an election campaign just after the extraordinary events, not just in Victoria, obviously, but in particular in Victoria, I think, over the past couple of years and the and the way the state government responded to that, again, completely legitimate subject for debate and contest, but not in the sense that Daniel Andrews is in bed with the police and therefore is, mm. you know, liable to impose lockdowns on a kind of whim or, you know, because that's his nature of wanting to control people. <laughs> but I think the interesting thing to think about too is whether the stories that, you know, we are suggesting aren't valid, whether they serve to take attention away from or somehow muddy the waters over the valid investigations or the valid questions, you know, whether whether it makes it harder for serious stories to be raised. You yeah. know, like it's interesting to see how this plays out, I think. You saw it in a sort of microcosm in that press conference after one of the Herald Sun stories where he was asked 15 or 17 times, I can't remember how many times, to comment on it, on the cyclist story. And he just said, I've answered all these questions before. I'm not going to go into de any more detail about it. They just tried to ask the same question over and over again. And that took up. That like, was the whole press that conference. That was basically the, the press, press conference. conference. And then that was the story the next day, refuses to answer questions about, you know, and he won't talk about Despite it. the fact that he and gave on a the one hour long press conference yeah. answering those very questions in 2017. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the effect of this on the media, Lenore? Well, I mean, you've got to always decide if these stories are then becoming part of the cycle, to what extent do you talk about them? And obviously we're talking about them today. To what extent do you ignore them? And also then how do you get attention to stories that you judge to be important? And also then I guess the bigger meta question, what does it do to the trustworthiness of the media in general? I mean, I think that's kind of ultimately the question and um, something that we all kind of need to think about. There was a Fox story that was really interesting talking about how this had happened in America. And one of the things they observed was that if this flooding the zone continues to happen, the news in the end becomes a culture war 
And mm. that's all the news is. That is a question. And it's a question for us too, in terms of when do you respond and what do you what do you do? I think it's a really live question. Mm. And it's interesting in the context of the Herald Sun, particularly that I think we've kind of come to see Sky, Sky After Dark, particularly as pretty much mimicking the Fox model in America and going into some of the wilder fields of conspiracy theory and, and amplifying that, particularly online. But the newspapers of News Corp are not like that. They, I mean, they're a bit like that, but they're not, you know, they're still they're still actual conventional newspapers that do proper news stories. In a sort of tabloid fashion. Yeah. yeah. And if they move further in that direction, then that's definitely a worry. I think it's too early to say that that's a, a trend, but mm. that this it was a particularly striking example. And I think that's why people have been talking about it so much, because even for the Herald Sun or Daily Telegraph or other news court papers, it was unusually... Latent. The yeah. amount of coverage and the lack of substance behind it was particularly striking. If this is a trend, it's particularly important in Australia where there's such concentration of media ownership, there's some places like Brisbane where there's only one paper or in Victoria, you know, in terms of printed papers, there's only two. So the influence they could potentially have if they went down that path is quite manifest. Next, looking back through time. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head, Mike. My story this week is kind of obscure and very British, so apologies for that. But it's about a guy called David Butler who is sort of well-known in in small circles in Britain who died this week uh, at the age of 98, who's known as the father of sophology. That's his uh, science of looking at elections, basically, when he... Didn't invent that term, but he certainly popularised it. So this guy would be Anthony Green's, like, hero? Probably, yes. (laughs) But what I really liked about him, which actually wasn't in our stories about him, but his biographer, Michael Crick, also a very well-known British journalist, wrote a biography of him and he was tweeting about him this week and he mentioned the fact that... So Butler's 98, died when he was 98, so he was obviously um, born um, in the early part of the 20th century, but his great-grandmother told him about how she and her sister had watched the Duke of Wellington's state funeral in 1852. And his grandfather was born even before that in 1830. His actual grandfather was born in 1831. So he's got like this, there's this connection in oral history way back into the middle of the 19th century. And yeah, I just love that kind of fact. (laughs) (laughs) That's lovely. Um, Lenore, what could you not get out of your head? Well, I'm going back even further. In <laughs> <laughs> we ran a story about the oldest known sentence written and it was uh, on an object from about 1700 BC and it was a Bronze Age Canaanite sentence. But what struck me was what it was written on, which was a comb which seems to be a knit comb, and the sentence said, may this tusk root out the lice of the hair and the beard, which appealed to me just because when my children were smaller and did get head lice, as most children do, it would send me completely insane and I would wash them and scour them and comb them and wash everything like a crazy woman for days. And the fact that people were doing that in 1700 BC is somehow kind of 
Nice. I think you both know what I can't get out of my head this week. <laughs> yes, you've talked about it all week. <laughs> if I sound tired, it's because of the co-ls, and I'll leave you with that. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Lenore. Thanks, Gabs. Thanks, Mike. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for listening today. If you liked this show and wanted to hear more about the Victorian election and Dan Andrews' leadership, there's a really great episode of Full Story with Margaret Simons that will be linked to in the show notes or you can just go back through the last few episodes. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Daniel Simo. The executive producer is me, Gabrielle Jackson. I hope you have a great weekend. Laura Murphy-Oates will be back with you on Monday and we'll see you then. <laughs>